Galatians chapter 2. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 to start off with. Your Bible's open. Starting in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask for the anointing of your word, the powerful presence of your spirit. Lord, even whatever I prepared, Lord, I pray that you would take it far beyond that, for you know what each person needs. And Lord, you would strengthen us for the work you've set before us. May your gospel be lifted up. May you, Jesus, be lifted up and draw all men in this room and outside this room to yourself. In your name we pray. Amen. From the, from the moment Paul was saved, we talked about his road to Damascus uh, conversion. It was the one event in the New Testament that's mentioned, as I told you, more times than any other event except for the cross and the resurrection. Three times in the book of Acts it's recorded because it's such a powerful testimony for all time that God can save anybody. But from the moment Paul was saved he immediately began to encounter opposition. Did he not? I mean, if you remember from what we discussed, right out of the gate, he had to be delivered out of the city of Damascus, down the city walls in a basket. The early church was hesitant to even welcome him, and you can kind of understand why. People were petrified of the guy and and what he had done. The early church was hesitant to uh, meet him with open arms. He encountered opposition from Jewish leaders whenever he went, when he began to go to Roman cities, there were synagogues in those Roman cities, and the Jewish leaders opposed him. He encountered resistance from the government leaders, mostly Roman leaders, uh, in various cities where he also went. He encountered demonically led people uh, that would just try and distract him, disrupt him. He had attacks on his body. If you know what that's like, if you've dealt with chronic pain and you know how hard to even concentrate to pray sometimes, he dealt with those kind of things. He had attacks on his time. You ever feel like your time's under attack? Like, where does the time go? He had attacks on his time. He had distractions. Some of the distractions we get in life, they seem so pointless, don't you? You're like, Lord, why would you even allow this to come in? Such a distraction. At all these things. Anything Satan could, could use to stop him or to slow him down from carrying out the work of the gospel. And by the way, Satan is determined to set up the same roadblocks and obstacles in our life too. Maybe not the exact same. I've not been bitten by a snake like Paul was or shipwrecked like Paul was or beaten and left for dead like Paul was, but we have a lot of other obstacles that we can relate to. If Satan can get you to cool off, to slow down, to sit down, to sit out, to chill out, or to give up, he'll do it. Whatever it takes. He'll even use your favorite TV show. He'll use your favorite hobby. He'll use family members. He'll use your job. He'll use crisis. Use sickness. You name it, he will use it and has used it to get 
believers on the sidelines or just throwing the towel altogether. But of all of Satan's schemes, the one that Paul despised the most, and, and Paul didn't enjoy any of Satan's buffeting, neither do you and I, but of all of Satan's schemes, the one that Paul despised the most was when Satan would infiltrate the church. This is the one that Paul hated the most. This is why he wrote Galatians. Sowing seeds of error, bringing in false doctrine, and then seeing the work of God come to a screeching halt. It's kind of like if you threw sand into the engine of your car. All of a sudden, it's going to come to a grinding halt. But Paul, even in these trying times, even when there were seeds of doubt, even there were seeds of false doctrine sown, by the help and strength of spirit, guess what he did? He still moved forward. He still moved forward, and he still proclaimed the truth, and he waited for God to calm the storms of confusion. And sometimes you're just going to have to wait for God to calm the storms of confusion. Sometimes I'm just going to have to wait. You still have to move forward. I still have to move forward. There's still loose ends. There's still things that, like, they're not resolved yet. But you still have to move forward in spite of those things. These things are going to happen. But if it's, if it's true truth, if it's the kind of truth that God wants us to live out, proclaim, if it's true truth, if it's important, you can count on the fact that Satan will fight against it. He's not going to bother what's not of God. He doesn't, you wonder why, you know, the psalmist wrote, why is it that the wicked just kind of live this carefree life? Well, Satan doesn't really bother things that are not true, but the gospel he comes against. But we have to push forward, as Paul did. You ever have somewhere to be? I mean, you're, you're really supposed to be at a certain place, an appointment, you're, you're really supposed to be there at a specific time, and it's an important meeting. You have every intention of being there, but something goes wrong. The car breaks down. Of all the days for the battery not to be fully charged, right? Can't find the camera for the right picture. An unexpected doctor visit that gets in the way of an important meeting. You have to reschedule everything. A task that has to be done. But even though there may be a detour, if it's important, it's still going to take place. But maybe not when you thought it was going to take place. Maybe not when I thought it was going to take place. If it's important, it might get detoured a bit, but it'll still come around. And such is the work of the gospel of grace and God's call in our life. We can be battered, we can be inconvenienced, we can be rerouted, but we still have to advance, and we'll still, and we will still advance by God's grace if it's important. And I hope you know the gospel is important. Paul was not going to be deterred by the infiltrations. Paul was not going to be deterred by the inconveniences. Paul was not going to be deterred. In his flesh, he wanted to be, I'm sure, many times like, I just want to go back to another life. But he couldn't. If you're taking notes, you can pull up on the screen here. The title of our time in the Word today, Advancing the Gospel. This is Paul's call to the Gentile world. 
And the first thing we want to look at is in verse 1, what I've titled the planting. Here we go. Paul, it says in verse 1, that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took also Titus with me. One of the things that, just kind of a quick observation, it is good for you and I to have a recollection of what God has done over the years. Paul could, he could say specifically after 14 years. I, I, you heard me reference in prayer, I got saved 22 years ago. I can think of when I left full, to be a full-time pastor four years ago. That you have a reference point of the things, the seasons that God has done in your life. And Paul was always looking forward, but he hadn't forgotten what God had done. David was the same way. Remember, David knew he could defeat Goliath because he had defeated a lion and a bear. And he remembered those victories. He remembered the things that God had brought him through. It's good for us to go back and look at what God has done for us. We don't live on past success. We don't live in past failure. But we do understand what God has done and has brought us through. Now, Paul had left Jerusalem either 11 years What he's speaking of here goes back to chapter 1, because you remember he talked about that he spent three years in Arabia uh, after he had come to Christ, and he left Damascus, and three years, we believe three years in Arabia, or some combination of Arabia and Damascus, I believe the way it renders that he was speaking of three years in in Arabia, and then back to Damascus, then he went to Jerusalem. So if you kind of read it through from chapter 1 right into chapter 2, which we don't have time to do this morning, but you can go back and do that, start around verse 18 of chapter 1 and read it through, Paul had left Jerusalem either, either 11 years or 14 years earlier than his first meeting with Peter that he references uh, in the end of chapter 1. And that was also the first time, remember the first time he went to Jerusalem was the first time he met Barnabas. If we read exactly as it flows, it seems more like you would add the three years plus the 11 years, or you would add the, I'm sorry, you would add the 14 years to the three years, and you would get 17 years from his conversion. But there are Bible scholars that think the three years is included in the 14, and there's others that think the three years is separate from the 14, and hence you have 17 years. It's not anything to divide over whether it was 14 years or 17 years. But if it seems like we read it straight through, it would appear 17 years from the conversion. And to me, that makes more sense when you look at the different things that happen in Paul's ministry, the mission trips and stuff, that would, that would allow for a little more time. But if it is 17 years from his conversion and 14 years from the first time he uh, had went up there to Jerusalem, this does not mean this was Paul's first time back to Jerusalem from the very first time he went. So in other words, remember, he went there after three years. It doesn't mean that he never went to Jerusalem again until right here, this 14-year later period. The term in the Greek can also mean once again. So once again, I went up to Jerusalem. And we believe that Paul uh, probably did go there on different occasions for some of the Jewish feasts, but we know that uh, it's very likely that he had taken... Well, we know he took up uh, a collection for a severe famine and went to Jerusalem, and that would have taken place during that time period as well. But during those 14 to 17 years, whether it was uh, whatever time it was, God had been using Paul in a steady progression of advancing the gospel 
beyond the Jewish world. He had already been advancing beyond the Jewish world. What he's doing here is recounting what God had been doing. So God had taken Paul, and he had taken the gospel outside of the Jewish realm in many different cities there in Turkey and over into uh, Greece and uh, in some of the islands there like uh, Crete and uh, Cyprus, parts of the Mediterranean, these Gentile communities where they were pagan religions. And Paul, he had also been instrumental in building up the early churches in all these areas of these Gentile uh, sections and geographic areas. He had been very instrumental in building up the churches, but his original involvement in the planting of churches or building up a church came from his friend and co-laborer, Barnabas. Barnabas was the one that not only first met Paul in Jerusalem, but he was the one that got Paul into the ministry of the church. So Paul had already been trying to just kind of, you know when you first got saved, you might just start kind of telling people about Jesus at your work? Well, that was Paul. He would, he would immediately begin to tell people the gospel, but the kind of structural approach of setting up a Bible study or having Sunday schools or having some ministry to a specific community or a children's ministry or like we have our Bonaire prison ministry where a team goes in. Well, all of that usually happens under the structure of when God puts a church together and then you have some pastoral leadership, you have different ministry leadership. And that part, Barnabas brought Paul into that aspect of the work of the ministry. Let me show you something on this map. This is um, a map you probably see in the back of your Bibles. This is that Mediterranean uh, from, uh, area from Italy all the way over to uh, modern-day Israel. And then you've got Turkey and Greece there. This is where Paul started out in Antioch, the church there in Antioch. What had taken place... Um, if you turn with me real quick to chapter 11 of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 11, go left in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. I want to I show you how Barnabas was used by God to bring Paul into pastoral ministry. Now remember, Paul already outranks pastors in the sense that he's been called as what? An apostle. And he didn't get that because a group of pastors laid hands on him and said, we now call you Paul the Apostle. Now, Jesus saves him on the road to Damascus and names him an apostle, says you are an apostle, you're one of the twelve. We talked about the fact that it's not a misuse of the word to have apostolic ministries that are not the original twelve apostles. Barnabas himself is cited in the book of Acts as having an apostolic ministry but he's not one of the 12 apostles. Does that make sense? So, in the book of Acts, chapter 11, we see Paul's being brought formally into the full ministry of the church. Now, this doesn't mean that he wasn't already doing the ministry of a church, but again, the structure of the apostles and the structure of the church in Jerusalem begins to uh, be part of Paul's ministry and Paul's life. Acts chapter 11, look at verse 21. 
And the hand of the Lord was with them. This is in the church of Antioch. So what had taken place is after the martyr, after Stephen had been stoned to death and there started to be opposition and persecution in the church, some of the church spread out. You guys remember Simon of Cyrene? He carried the cross of Jesus. We believe he was from Africa. We believe he was one of the early converts. We believe that if we study the whole book of Acts, I believe that Simon of Cyrene and other men of Cyprus and other men perhaps of North Africa had ended up in Antioch and were teaching the gospel to Gentiles. See, these guys were Gentiles themselves or part Jew and part Gentile, and they didn't even think for a moment that, hey, this should only be for Jewish people. They immediately thought we should take the gospel to non-Jewish people, and they did, and they went to Antioch. Well, the church in Jerusalem found out that a great work was taking place at Antioch, and they didn't plan it. But they sent Barnabas to go check it out to make sure the doctrine was good, that if it was a work of God, that it really was based on the scriptures and Jesus Christ was being preached. And so Barnabas goes up to Antioch. Once Barnabas gets there, this is what he sees. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had came, he had seen the grace of God. And look at Barnabas' response. And he was glad. And he encouraged them all that the purpose of the heart, that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, this is speaking of Barnabas, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Boy, wouldn't you love God to say that about you? You're a good man or woman, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This is where it takes place. So on the map here, what happens? This is over here. On the, you know, you've got the guys from North Africa. You've got the guys from Cyprus. They all hook up. They decide to take the gospel to Antioch. They go to Antioch. They start preaching. People get saved. They start a church. The apostles, Peter, James, John, all these guys, they hear about it. They send Barnabas to check it out. Barnabas is glad. He says, no, this is the real deal. These guys are preaching the exact same gospel we are. They're getting saved. Barnabas puts a big arm around them. They actually ask Barnabas to be their pastor. That's what happens. Because they see that he's even more mature than they are. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. They ask Barnabas to be their pastor. The ministry begins to grow so much, Barnabas can't do it all. And he remembers this guy that he had introduced himself to in Jerusalem years earlier named Saul. Now notice where Tarsus is. It's a lot closer to go take a quick hike to Tarsus than all the way back to Jerusalem. So Barnabas goes over to Tarsus, finds Saul and says, Brother Saul, if you're an apostle, and I know you are, I'm pretty sure you can teach. I need your help in Antioch. Saul comes back with him to Antioch. They go to Antioch. Together they are co-pastors for a year, and the church even explodes more. How about that for a co-pastor team? Paul and Barnabas. One year, 
worth more than many pastors in 40 years, right? So the great work takes place. Eventually, God will send them both out. They'll give up the role of pastor, and they'll be evangelists and church planters. They will give up that role, but they will have built up a new group of pastors that were there. So all that takes place, and that's why we're talking about this first verse here, the planting. You see how God had used Paul and Barnabas to plant the gospel, to plant the churches. And what he did then in serving with Barnabas, that helped to set the stage for all the other churches that would be planted there in the Mediterranean world. Then it says that he brought Titus with him in verse 1. Now, Titus was not Jewish. Barnabas was Jewish. He was a Cyprian Jew from Cyprus. Barnabas was Jewish. Paul was Jewish, and Paul was from Cilicia up here in modern-day Turkey, but Paul was a Roman citizen, but he was 100% Jewish of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was Jewish. Barnabas was Jewish. Titus was Gentile. He was not Jewish. He was Greek. And he had never been circumcised, and neither Paul nor Barnabas told him he had to be because they basically said, you have a circumcision in the heart. You've been born again. You're good. Now all you have to do is just serve Jesus with us. And Titus was just as much a servant of the Lord as they were. As a matter of fact, the three of them seemed to be at times pretty inseparable. Two Jewish guys, one Gentile guy. So he brings Titus with him as he goes to Jerusalem. And the reason why they're going to Jerusalem is there has been other people. Now Barnabas was sent up from Jerusalem, but when he came up from Jerusalem, all he did was encourage the church. But later on, some other guys came up from Jerusalem, and they did not come to encourage the church. They came to tell the church, you guys are all in error, and you're going to have to start getting circumcised. You've got a lot of Jewish law you need to start following, or you're not even going to be saved. And so this all starts to set a little wildfire in the church. And Paul and Barnabas, along with Titus, head to Jerusalem eventually to take it up with the apostles and say, this has to stop. Where is this coming from? And we need to put a stop to it. So this is what Paul is recounting what he's been doing as a, as a pastor and doing the work of evangelism. Can you advance this next one for me? Let's look at this proclamation that Paul makes in, in verse 2. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might have run or run in vain. So what takes place here, Paul recounts, he's recounting, now remember, he's writing to the Galatians. This is a letter, right? He's writing to the Galatians, and he's recounting to them this trip he took to Jerusalem to tell the apostles of the great work God had been doing, but the recent work Satan had been doing to sabotage the gospel. Make sense? So he's writing the letter to Galatians, says, Dear Galatians, you guys have completely abandoned the gospel, and this reminds me of another time, is the way he could have written it. This reminds me of another time where I dealt with this. I had to go all the way to Jerusalem, talk to the apostles, but I recounted for them the gospel that I preach. And he recounts for them what had taken place when he got to Jerusalem. Now, we, can't have, we don't have time to turn there, but you can write in your notes, Acts chapter 15, this is where we believe the Jewish council takes pl- the Jerusalem council takes place, where Paul... And Barnabas come back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles, look, 
Whoever these guys are, they're stirring up the people saying they can't be saved unless they're circumcised. They have to start to observe the Mosaic law. We never taught them any of that. Jesus didn't give me that at the road to Damascus. I don't teach that. I teach them all they have to do is follow Christ and love the Lord, and they're saved by grace and grace alone. These other guys had been stirring these things up. So he's recounting the Galatians that kind of what's happening to them, Paul had dealt with before. What he's saying is this, their sudden fixation, the Galatians' sudden fixation with the law rather than the gospel isn't the first time Paul had dealt with this. This isn't Paul's first rodeo. He'd been down this path before. He had seen guys like them try and sabotage the work of the gospel. But as Paul conveys the church in Jerusalem, what had been taking place, from the time he has been converted, Paul's reminding them, he said, I, preach, uh, I, I communicated them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So he reminds the apostles of the gospel that he's been preaching, the purity of it, the simplicity of it, and the fact that he received it from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he had taken it to the Gentile world, that the gospel of, that he was preaching was just repentance, turning from sin, trusting in Jesus, Nothing else, not trusting in Jewish ceremonies, not trusting in circumcision, not trusting in the feast or anything else. Paul said none of that stuff, none of the the Mosaic customs commanded under the law, but only the foundation of the blood of Jesus, the resurrection, and repentance. This was the gospel he had been preaching. This is what Paul said had been transforming lives in Antioch, in modern-day Turkey, in Greece, all over. Turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 13. I hope what you'll see today is that the book of Acts actually has connection points to the different epistles, in the, you know, whether you're looking at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Uh, the book of Acts maps back to some of the things that we will see, for example, here in Galatians. In Acts 13, we get an idea of the gospel Paul preached. We not only know what he received from Jesus from the book of Acts, but we get an idea of exactly what Paul preached. Look at Acts chapter 13. Take, for example, verse 23. Uh, from verses 23 through, uh, through 32, Paul basically recounts the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But look at verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, and Paul tells us exactly who he is, Yeshua, or Jesus. Verse 23, Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 27, just for the sake of time. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, Paul said, even though Jesus could be found in the Old Testament Scriptures, they had fulfilled in condemning him. Now, this was actually the death sentence. Verse 27, this is the death of Jesus. Look at verse 30. But God raised him up from the dead. This is the gospel Paul's preaching. Paul's saying, God sent his son. The Jewish leaders killed him, but God raised him. Okay, that's the historic part of the gospel. Then verse 32 Here's the good news, why we call the gospel good news. And we declare to you what? Glad tidings that the promise, of, that promise which was made to the fathers. Glad tidings of what? That we can be saved, that we can be forgiven, that we can be healed, that we can be given eternal life. This is the glad tidings, this is the good news. Verse 32, I'm, verse 38, I'm sorry, drop down to verse 38. 
and we'll just read verse 38 through 40. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that's Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Again, the simplicity of the gospel. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Could Paul be any clearer when he preached the gospel? From the outset, he, everywhere he preached, synagogues, Gentiles, Jew, didn't matter. Paul said, you can only be saved through Jesus. The law can't save you. He said it from the outset. Beware, therefore, lest there be spoken in the prophets that which come upon you. In other words, he would warn of anything else. So this, is what he, this was the gospel that he preached. Paul, he was always uh, wise and caring, and even as he recounted what he would preach, notice that he says that uh, those of reputation, he did it privately. He took the apostles and talked to them privately, away from the whole rest of the Jewish congregation, so that they would be fully understanding one another in full agreement before they would go present everything to the rest of the church. And there's wisdom in that. You don't have, in your own families, there are times where mom and dad should only have a discussion with mom and dad before it's brought to the whole family. Because sometimes the maturity of people, they think you're actually at odds when you're really not. You're just kind of sorting through the facts. And this is what Paul was doing. He's like, you know the gospel I preach. Let me recount how God has done the work. He's having this discussion with Peter, with James, with John. They're having a private discussion. Here's how it went down. So when did the schism start? Well, this is what... So they kind of work all those details out privately so there's no disruption of the facts. Very important. Not to put the other apostles on the spot. They might really like these guys personally, but then realize, wow, we didn't realize they were that off the rails. We actually did give them the right hand of fellowship. Well, we didn't know they were that deceptive or whatever the case may be. He spoke to them privately. And this is all, um, you know, Paul is just emphasizing, look, the gospel that we preach is not to Gentiles that they need to become Jews. It's the Gentiles that they need to be born again. That's the gospel we've been preaching. We've not been telling them to become Jewish. We've been telling them to become followers of Jesus. If they're Jewish, Paul would embrace their Jewishness and be in the synagogue with them. If they're not, they just need to repent and turn to Christ. Now, if you look at uh, what Paul did here, just a couple quick notes you can write down for yourself. What Paul does in, in... the ministry that he had been conducting, what we see of what the gospel that he preached, and what we see in the way that he interacts with the apostles. Three things you can write down in your taking notes. Number one, be uncompromising. There's only, there's only one gospel. Be unco- don't compromise the gospel. One gospel, be uncompromising. Don't add to it. Don't dilute it. If, if Jesus said that they killed me, then Paul said they killed him. If God rose him from the dead, Paul said that God rose him from the dead. If Jesus said the only thing you need is repentance, then don't add to it anything else. Be uncompromising. Two, be bold. Paul would preach the gospel to anybody. We need to be bold. The power of the gospel has the power to change life. Believe it or not, even when you just speak the gospel, even if you're trembling, your hands are shaking, the gospel still has great power, even when we don't. 
And the third thing is be sensitive to the Spirit. There's a time and a place. <laughs> Paul knew that when he went, got to Jerusalem, it wasn't gather all church. All right, I've discovered a big problem, and it's coming from right here in Jerusalem. I'm not here to sort it out. No, he went quietly with the apostles and says, look, here's what's going on. Be sensitive. Be sensitive to certain situations. I've told people before, I, when I'm talking to someone in the foyer of the church here, I have a different conversation than if I'm one-on-one having coffee with them. Different situations require sensitivity to the Spirit. You can't put everything on Facebook that comes into your head. You can't. That's not sensitivity to the Spirit. Sometimes it's just pure stupidity is what it is. So we see this proclamation. Let's take a look at the next couple of verses here. Back to Galatians chapter 2. Back to Galatians 2. By the way, real quick here. In, in Galatians, I, I want to read this real quick. In Acts, you don't have to turn there. In Acts 13, um, it says this. You've got to love this about Paul and Barnabas. It says, later on in the same chapter, verse, 20, verse 46, Acts 13, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. They already were bold, but they grew bolder. And, and it says that Paul said this to the Jewish leaders. You talk about, you got this guy, there's not many guys like him. He says to the Jewish leaders, but since you reject the gospel... And judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we now turn to the Gentiles. Paul on winning friends and influencing people here. Uh, there, there is a sensitivity, but again, when it came time where God says, all right, now you need to put a line in the sand, he would do it. It was always done with love, but the reality is that God used that moment to make it a statement from the Holy Spirit that Paul's ministry would now be almost exclusively to the Gentiles, although many Jews would still get saved in the process, but he would then really kind of shift the ministry there, which is, that, is exactly what happened. Now, we looked at the proclamation. Let's look at what takes place next here. Paul says in verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. I think with Paul, it's probably even for a second, uh, that the truth of the gospel might continue with, with you. He had one of, Paul had one of the strongest spiritual spines the world has ever seen, and that's why God used him. I mean, it wasn't because of him, but the Holy Spirit gave him this strong spiritual spine to be used and to seek out and to sort out the kind of false things that can creep in and set the, uh, you know, set the template once and for all that when you see these things, be aware that Satan's very crafty and these things will come in. And so I've titled this next uh, section here, uh, these uh, few verses, the premeditation. What was taking place is that there were men that were pretending to stand shoulder to shoulder with the apostles. So they'd come from Jerusalem. They liked to throw the apostles' names around. Hey, uh, I had lunch with Peter last week. Oh, really? Peter the apostle? That Peter? Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we broke bread together. Um, I'm from Jerusalem, you know, the holy city. Me and Peter were real tight. 
Oh, and James, James shot by the other day. John, you know, you know John, he was the beloved. Yeah, me and him are real tight too. So they like to throw the apostles' names around. So they, they would uh, pretend to stand shoulder to shoulder with the apostles. They could go to other cities, and people would hear their Jewish accent. They, they could clearly, they could mock up any story they wanted and make themselves look like really important guys and like the apostles had sent them. And they pretended to be true and faithful followers of Christ, but they were intent, according to Paul, they were intent from the beginning to reintroduce the law and adherence to the law as essential for salvation. Paul say from the beginning they were deceptive and crafty, not to mention that they loved name-dropping and everything else. And they no doubt, went to the Old Testament, showed that circumcision was commanded forever. We don't have time to go there, but it was commanded forever. Little did they know that God would someday have a circumcision in the heart, which which is also in the Old Testament, by the way, which is the real forever that God was speaking of. But they started in Jerusalem, and somehow they eventually made their way up. They too heard of all the things that were going on up in the cities to the north. They get up to Antioch and Syria, where Paul and Barnabas were pastoring this church, where they were discipling the church, and it appears they used their participation in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church and their association with the apostles, uh, that they used all that to come and cast out that Paul really wasn't an apostle, that Barnabas had been messed up by Paul, that you guys have bad pastors and teachers here. If we could bring up, we could have brought up Peter and John, but they were busy. Well, if they brought up Peter and John, they would have been cast out. Peter and John weren't in agreement with them either. Beware of people who will play you against another person, and the other person isn't around. Because if Peter was there, like, we never, we, don't, we didn't send these. I, I had lunch with him two years ago, not last week, right? You ever meet people like this? They kind of mock up a story. And so they were very deceptive, and they had cast out on the gospel, they had cast out on Paul's authority. They used their Jerusalem background to convince the people, look, we were sent here by the apostles, and you guys better get circumcised. You're not going to be saved. Paul eventually calls their bluff and said, then we're all marching down to Jerusalem together, and let's talk to Peter. I know Peter. You say you know him. I do know him. We'll go down there, and we'll actually find out what's going on. Three things about these men, though, if you're taking notes. They came in secretly, number one. He said that they he said they came in, they spied out our liberty. They came in secretly, they observed. False teachers are observers of human behavior. They know it makes people tick. They know it makes people respond. They know it really strokes people's ego. They also know how to act on people's fears. And then the last thing. Number three, they crafted plans and words to deceive people. They come up with a plan. Don't think false teachers and false politicians and all these people are by accident. They know exactly what they're doing. Paul makes it clear. They know what they're doing. Remember in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, Paul said, but even if we are an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel for you, reject it. Because an angel of heaven could look pretty Legit, but Satan can dress up like an angel. But if he brings a different message, you know you're talking to a demon, not an angel. 
They're super smooth, these guys. And sometimes what comes out of their mouth is 90% accurate. But I got news for you. God doesn't want 90% accurate because the 10% is lethal. How many of you are okay with just eating 90% pure food, the only other 10% is poison? You need a lot less than 10% to die, right? I don't want to preach 1% untruth from the pulpit, much less 10%, 5%, 3%, whatever it may be. It is lethal. Ultimately, as teachers and structures of this hybrid doctrine, which is Jesus plus the law, they would hopefully, and this is what their goal was, to establish themselves as the authority figures. And once the people had abandoned the apostles and the instructions, they would then be in charge, just like the Pharisees were, just like Paul was before Christ. See, confusion is sown, then division is created, and fear is fostered, and these men would take the reins of power. And what is taught as truth and righteousness is really a false gospel. Paul warned of this other time. Last, place, last time we'll turn to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 20. Can you turn with me one more time? Acts chapter 20. Look what Paul warns before he's, he's en route to get back to Jerusalem. But look what he warns in Acts chapter 20, starting verse 28. In verse 27, actually, he says, For I have not shunned, verse 27, Acts chapter 20, For I have not shunned to declare you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so Paul's talking to church leaders. He would be talking to pastors like myself. So look, God's put you in this position, but you need to shepherd in such a way that the Holy Spirit, who's made you overseers, remember that you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw disciples after themselves. This is always what it is. It's a power grab. If you see guys that have great ministries and they teach 90% truth, but 10% of what they preach, you say, wow, I can't find that anywhere in Scripture. And they're making a lot of money and they have a ton of power, they're savage wolves. A little bit of false doctrine is enough to cause a lot of people to go down the wrong road and never really get saved. And they might be really popular. And like I said, you can watch them nine times in a row and say, well, that's, that's solid. And then all of a sudden, a completely false doctrine comes out of their mouth and no one stops them because there's no men of God say. No, that isn't true at all. Because they're really not wanting people to follow Jesus. They're wanting people to follow who? Themselves. That's what Paul said. They want people to follow themselves. They're man-centered. But Paul makes clear none of this is accidental. These men are willfully or they're ignorantly pawns of Satan, but their plans and schemes are well thought out, but the Holy Spirit exposes it. Let's take a look at the next couple of verses, Galatians verse 6, Galatians 2 verse 6, but those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to no man. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. <laughs> Believe it or not, Paul's talking about the apostles here in this verse. Well, that seems a little harsh. Well, You've got to read the next couple of verses. It's not harsh once you read verses 7 through 10, and we'll get to that to come to a close. This perception 
if you're taking notes, this perception uh, that Paul speaks of that some, um, some seem to be really something, but he also says that God shows no personal favoritism. We know this is true in the ministry of Jesus. Did he love the apostles? Yes. But we know that he had just as much an eye on a widow who put two little mites in as he did the very apostles he chose. We know he loved Mary and Martha as much as he loved Peter and Paul, right? There was no personal favoritism. When we get to heaven, now there will be roles. Moses may have a role. Elijah may have a role. It appears that they probably do from the Mount of Transfiguration. The apostles will sit on 12 thrones, the Bible tells us. Jesus makes that clear. But I don't know what role, but that little widow might have a role that far outranks us in this room. Mary and Martha as well, and many others. Favoritism is not faithfulness God will reward, but he has no favoritism about, well, this person's important and this person isn't important. And Paul realized that Peter Peter was an apostle with a mantle on him, but he wasn't more important than the brand new convert in Jerusalem that only got saved the day before. Nobody's more important. It nauseates God when big shot pastor leaders act like big shots. And Paul was just saying that, Paul wasn't saying Peter and them were acting like that, quite the opposite. He was just saying that the people seemed to want that. These these deceptive men, they had a heart for power and recognition. They didn't have a humble heart for Jesus and to simply be servants. We know that was true of these other men. They didn't have a love and a unity with the apostles. They coveted the position. They coveted the authority. They probably coveted the miracles that uh, Peter and John had done. They desired to be looked up to for spiritual wisdom and direction. Well, that was the false guys. We know what they wanted. But if the apostles were perceived as important, any connection to them could elevate the importance of of these other men. So they kind of would like, if, they, if the people perceive, wow, Peter can do miracles. If I can be associated, people will think I'm important. But it's evident that some people in the church, even though they, uh, they might have had a very pure faith and they were true believers, they had a different problem. They began to put the apostles on a pedestal. It's called people worship. Even the apostles... If worshiping the apostles is forbidden by God, nobody could be lifted up. The apostles, they weren't asking for this. Peter and John weren't saying, hey, did you guys see all we did? You you guys need to really kind of put us on a high place. No, they weren't saying that. But weirdly enough, people gravitate. This is why the whole world will someday follow the Antichrist. People want a man to worship. They do. Human beings gravitate to a Babel, they gravitate to a Nebuchadnezzar, they gravitate to leaders. And they gravitate to personalities and positions rather than Jesus, who's actually Savior, King, and Lord. Isn't that interesting? The, one that, the only one you're allowed to actually bow down, they don't gravitate to. And many Jews, when Jesus walked the earth, remember in Jesus' earthly ministry, they would say that they loved God and that that was the greatest commandment but in their heart of hearts, and Jesus knew it because he seemed to call it out on a, on a number of occasions, in their heart of hearts, they had more respect for Abraham, Moses, and David. 
than they had for Jesus, who was actually the Son of God in their very presence. They were unmoved by him, but they, oh, they could talk about David, Abraham, and Moses all day long. They're great forefathers. And they were great in a sense, but they're not in the same league as Jesus. Even the Apostle Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, he fell into this momentary trap when he said, let us build a temple for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And God struck him down and said, no, this is my son, only hear him. The gap between Moses and Jesus is like the gap between here to the end of the universe. Moses murdered a man one time. Jesus never committed a single sin. Understand the difference. When God uses a man in a great way, people are often drawn to the vessel rather than the one who's actually using and filling that vessel. The one who gives breath to everyone, the one who presides over all creation. Peter, who had erred in his view of Moses and Elijah, that just temporarily he, he, he messed up in that moment thinking that they were all equal. But he found himself later, as he's walking in the Spirit, he deflected the adoration when God used him as just a man to heal a man in Acts chapter 3. He turned to the people because the people immediately wanted to start worshiping Peter and John, like, wow, let's, let's, let's make them pope or whatever. We, we, let's, let's make these guys really important. Now, Peter's turned to them, and he looked intently. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently as though we, by our own power or godliness, have made this man walk? Peter spurned people worship, but a lot of leaders cultivate the people worship. They want you to worship them. And when they drop little things here and there, it's a means. And so the apostles weren't doing that, and yet people still... Remember the people, they wanted a king. They wanted Saul. God's like, you don't want a man to worship. No, we do want a man to worship. No, you don't. Yes, we do. And that never seems to stop. People always want to lift up a man to worship. And Paul here, he's calling it out. He's emphasizing that only the approval of God is what matters. You don't need man's approval. You shouldn't seek people's uh, worship. Paul never forgot. Here's the thing about Paul. He never forgot that he had actually met the king of kings face to face. He had heard Jesus' voice. He had seen him face to face. He received instructions. And after that, no other positions or titles were worthy of comparison. He couldn't know... He wasn't impressed by Peter. He wasn't impressed by John. He wasn't impressed by himself. Now understand that Paul had great respect and admiration for the apostles. Matter of fact, he says, let's look at these last couple of verses. He says, how do we know he had great respect for the apostles? He says it, verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel to the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcised had been to Peter, he realized that Peter had been given a certain mantle. He was the man that God had said, you are my vessel to the, to the uh, Jewish world. Verse 8, for he who had worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively to me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, Paul said these guys were pillars of the faith, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles as they to the circumcised desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Understand that Paul had great respect and admiration for the apostles. He sees them as pillars. He sees them as handpicked by God as he was. But he's not overstating their value. 
He understands their position. Men, you're called to be husbands and fathers. You have a position. Don't overstate its value. Fulfill its calling. Big difference. But he knows that he's a flawed man. He knows they're flawed men. He knows that they need grace. He says by the grace he mentioned, they're saved by grace and only used by the will and power of God. And we want to close with, really we see these men circle the wagons, drive out the false doctrine, and really come... That one more. There we go. The partnership. There we go. What a blessing it was in just this week as we, you saw our servants stand up. It was a blessing to uh, come together this week. 60 plus servants giving your time, investing in the kids, investing in parents, investing in the kingdom of God. And we saw it when we were down in Guatemala. It was three different churches. Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Calvary Chapel, Richmond. Calvary Chapel, La Esperanza. All coming together. Three churches with one mission. I'm in regular contact with pastors who are like-minded the faith. Uh, we might have some differences in style. We might have some differences in preference. A couple of my, I have pastor friends from different denominations. They're not all Calvary Chapel pastors. Uh, but with the love for each other, even this morning, I get a text from a pastor in Northern Virginia out of the blue. I'm praying for you this morning. I've, I, last few weeks, I've got them from different guys, and we encourage one another. Uh, this, even this week, some of the VBS setup you saw up here is being used at two other churches this month, right here in Richmond, that they'll be using our set. We're not, you know, we're not renting it out to them, just use it. We use lighting from another church. Some of the lighting we, we got from a different church that allowed us to borrow that from them. It is imperative that the true body of Christ come together and serve together. But the unity has to be in truth. It can't be an error. J.C. Ryle said unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the unity of hell. The Antichrist will cobble together churches too, and it will be under false pretense. We have to unify, but it has to be under truth. Those who opposed Paul, they were completely united in deception. The enemy is 100% united against the gospel. He never stops. He never stops sowing doubt and discord. In the body of Christ, we have to be equally united and in harmony and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if we are, it is a force that crushes the power of Satan. It really is. I'll read. Uh, you know, there was um, someone in the Peanuts gang named Lucy. You guys remember her? And uh, Linus had changed the TV channel, and Lucy threatened him with her fist. He said, and he said to her, he said, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asked Linus. And she said, these five fingers. <laughs> Lucy says, individually, they're nothing. But together, <laughs> like this single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> Which channel do you want, asked Linus. Turn it away, looking at his fingers. He says... Why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) That's true, isn't it? If the church really would unite and really would get united, it would be powerful. But instead, you've got either false ministries or self-seeking ministries or all these other things, and they're all in all different directions, and there's no power because it hasn't come together in the Holy Spirit. But here's the good news. God is a good father, and he actually knows how to unify his children. 
And as much as Satan tries to cloud and confuse and divide godly men and women, godly men and women, those that love Christ and those that love the truth, will by God's grace and through his word, they'll see through the lies, and I believe they will come together in unity. I know it will happen. I, when, as the approach of Jesus, the true church will come together. The false church will be coming together too. The true church will come together. And this is what we see the apostles. They come together and they encourage one another, you go back and reach the Gentiles, we'll reach the Jews, we're in this together. There may be some tension at times. There may be some work to do in understanding one another. That takes, that's just like families, right? Families have to work through things. You have to work through, Paul and them had to work through this stuff. But if our eyes are on Christ, we'll end up seeing what's true and what isn't true. We'll work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We'll actually see the Holy Spirit purify our motives and our work. And we'll be able to clearly see who is called for this and who is called for that and what areas and who's gifted for this and who's gifted for that. It won't be, well, I, I really want that for myself. It's true. That which doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. This is especially true in the body of Christ, though. If it doesn't kill us, the Holy Spirit will actually weed out the weeds and actually will have a more fertile, fruitful ministry. See, the apostles, they had together, they had, here at the end of this chapter, or at the end of this uh, verse 10, they had rejected the lies. They had rejected the men that were sowing them. They had come together in fellowship. They had a deeper appreciation for one another. And the result? Well, the gospel advances again. The church moves out, each one in their calling. More lives are touched, and Satan's plan actually backfires. And I just wanted to show you this to kind of close this out. When you look at these last few verses, Paul mentions when they saw the grace, he mentions the gospel that had been committed to me. When they saw the gospel that had been committed to me, when they saw the grace that was working in me, the grace perceived in verse 9, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, that we should go. They gave and go. And we look at all these verses and we see this. The true gospel plus grace equals what? Giving spirits, people that go forward and just go out and do the work of the gospel, and growth. Growth in the relationship. True gospel plus grace giving, going, and growing. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we know, Lord, that uh, we have an enemy. We know that he wants to distort the work of the gospel, but we know in whom we have believed in. And we know that you are able, Lord, to protect your church from false teaching. We know you're able to protect us from our own self-will. You know you're able to protect us from, uh, Lord, just pride and egos. And Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to give us a book like Galatians where we can see that some of the things that we experience are not new. You've already shown us how to deal with these things. Lord, I pray that we'd never take for granted the gospel that has saved us, never take for granted grace. We won't put each other on a pedestal, but we also won't look down on one another. And Lord, we will unify, but only in truth. But Lord, we'll have hearts to be unified. And Lord, that you would use this church, this pastor, these people, you would use us to advance the gospel for your glory, that Jesus and Jesus alone would be lifted up and that lives would be saved. And it's in your name we pray.
Amen.